Welcome to Taneo Insights, a podcast that provides in-depth analysis on the issues that matter most to CEOs and their businesses. I'm your host, Kevin Kajawara, co-president of Taneo's political risk advisory business. Let's get started. Next Friday, February the 24th, marks the one-year anniversary of Russia's unprovoked full-on invasion of Ukraine, so-called special military operation that was meant to be over in days, Ukrainian government toppled. We were meant to be marking this anniversary being really angry at Putin and uh, lamenting the fact that Ukraine had become a wholly owned subsidiary of Russia. But events have uh, defied expectations and been defined in equal measure by the surprisingly abysmal battlefield performance of Russia, the heroic actions of the Ukrainian military and indeed the Ukrainian people, and the potent reemergence of American strategic leadership. One year on, Putin has accomplished few of his goals. He failed to take Kyiv. Zelensky remains president and his wartime leadership draws historical parallels. Ukraine has closer ties to the West and NATO, despite some cracks, remains far from obsolete, united and fit for purpose. And Putin's even limited goal uh, of taking the entire Donbass remains uh, elusive. He's on his third war commander and Russia in less than a year has suffered an estimated 200,000 battlefield casualties, eight times what the United States endured in 20 years in Afghanistan. But a new offensive by Russia, bolstered by thousands of new recruits, appears to be underway. So to help us understand what's happening and to anticipate what's to come in the second year of this war, I am joined by two experts uh, on this subject. Jeff Edmonds is a research scientist at CNA, also known as the Center for Naval Analyses, where he focuses on Russia's military, its foreign policy, its threat perceptions, and information and cyber operations. He served in the Obama administration as the director for Russia uh, on the National Security Council. And previously, he was a military analyst at the Central Intelligence Agency, and he served in the U.S. Army doing tours in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And he joins us today for the first time. So welcome, Jeff. Andrea Kendall-Taylor, familiar to many of you. She's a senior fellow and the director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Previously, she served as the Deputy National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council and as a senior analyst at CIA. She's a senior advisor at our strategic partner firm, West Exec Advisors. Uh, and actually with today's broadcast, she joins the very exclusive and prestigious Five Timers Club at, uh, at Taneo in, in Intelligence. So Andrea, your, uh, your uh, velvet smoking jacket uh, monogrammed is on, uh, on its way. Um, so welcome back and, and, and thank you both for, for joining. And Andrea, maybe I can, maybe I can start with you here. And, and as we initiate this conversation, let's, let's set the table here a little bit you know, we're about to hit the one-year anniversary, as I, as I indicated. Um, give us your sense, if you will, of, of the state of play right now as, as Russia prepares this new offensive. Maybe it's already underway, but give us your sense of, of where things are. What's our starting point going into year two on the battlefield? I'd love to hear your assessment there. But also politically, you know, what do the key players now want, uh, whether that be the United States, NATO and the other EU allies, Russia itself, whose narrative has continued to shift. Um, Ukraine thus far seems to be the most clear in its goals. Uh, Zelensky wants to go back to the pre-2014 uh, borders, with Russia all the way out of Ukraine, including out of Crimea. So give us your sense of, uh, of where we are. Great. Thanks for having me back. It's, it's wonderful to be back. 
Um, I think the best way I can characterize where we are now is a period of high uncertainty. It feels more uncertain to me now um, than it has in previous months, in large part because we do seem to be waiting for this impending Russian offensive. Um, the last couple of months have seen really few changes, uh, significant changes in the front lines. I think the one exception there is maybe some incremental Russian gains around Solidar and Bakhmut that have come at really significant Russian costs. Um, but I think you know, that demonstrates um, that Russia's tactics are evolving a bit, that they are adapting. Um, they are now really sending basically human waves forward to overtake some of the Ukrainian positions. So there is some evidence that Russia's um, tools and tactics are changing. But the big question now is really about Russia's uh, capacity to go on the offensive. And I think that's where all of the question marks lie. I don't think anyone can really tell you exactly what we should expect of Russia's offensives. Um, some people are anticipating that Russia could make some incremental gains in the coming days and months. Um, others will assess that they that Russia doesn't have that kind of capacity because of poorly trained troops, that they haven't addressed these deeper fundamental problems um, that have plagued them so far. So I, th I think that's really, I, I don't know where things are going, and it, it feels a little bit unsettling um, in this current moment. Um, in terms of objectives, though, I don't think that anyone's objectives have really changed. Certainly Russia's objectives have not changed. I think it's clear for the time being that Putin is very focused on the Donbass, on eastern Ukraine, on Donetsk and Luhansk. That's where he wants to make um, the most immediate gains there in the East. Um, but I don't think overall that his objectives have changed in any meaningful way. I mean, I don't, there's really no change on Putin's part. He seem, still seems to be really, relatively confident that he can make uh, progress over the long term. And his play definitely seems to be that he has the staying power, that he can wait the West out. Um, and his goal still seems to be the ultimate, the complete subjugation of Ukraine. Um, as you said, Kevin, Ukraine's objectives have largely, haven't really changed much in the last several months. Um, they still want to restore their territorial integrity. They want to get back to the pre-2014 lines, and that includes Crimea. They want to see accountability for the war crimes, and they want reparations. So they also have a maximalist definition of what victory looks like. And then I think I would put the West maybe somewhere in between. Um, and obviously there's going to be really different views depending on different European capitals that you're talking to. Um, but at a minimum, I think the United States wants to see Russia's strategic defeat um, and also a tactical defeat. And I think at this point, um, Washington doesn't want to see anything less than Russia returning to the 2014 line. And I think what you hear over and over, though, is that the United States is still um, helping Ukraine to put it in a position of strength um, so that it can get to the negotiating table in as strong a position as possible. That's kind of what you continue to hear. Um, and so I think I, that's why I kind of put them somewhere in the middle. I still think that Washington um, believes this will end in negotiations. And what they provide has incrementally changed based on the changing nature of the fight. Um, and also just, again, to put Ukraine in that position of strength. So I wanna bring Jeff into the conversation here in just a, in just a moment with the same question essentially, but, um, but you said something about, you know, um, what you're starting to see on the battlefield from the Russian perspective, right? Which is these, these 
sort of human waves that they are uh, sending in with uh, attempting to essentially overwhelm um, the Ukrainians by just wave after wave after wave, which obviously is putting its um, own soldiers, Russia's soldiers, uh, through the meat grinder, um, so to speak. Um, but are you seeing tactical changes? I mean, are the tactical changes you're seeing done by the Russians representative of learning from the mistakes of battle, or are they are they more from a position of weakness and desperation in a, in, in a sense that they are now this is this is the methodology of war that they are now employing, which uh, seems pretty medieval or Game of Thrones like. Andrea. Oh, sorry, I thought that was over to Jeff. Um, it's a good question, and I am curious to hear what Jeff has to say. I don't, I still don't sense that Russia feels itself in a position of desperation. Certainly, they have not had the advances or the success that Putin um, anticipated, as you teed up in the introduction. Um, and they have had, because they've had so little success on the battlefield, we've obviously seen them doing things like targeting Ukraine's electrical infrastructure and cities and other things. So I, I think they understand that they um, are facing challenges on the battlefield. And so, I mean, I, I often think of what Putin does, and I don't know if it necessarily applies directly in this situation, but it's often like a throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. And so they're, they're adapting, they're doing different things to figure out if they can shake something up in a way that will produce the results that they want. And so this seems to me, that's been, you know, this, these human waves um, in part um, enabled by Prigozhin and the Wagner Group um, seems to have had at least some success, arguably more success um, than we've seen elsewhere. And so I think that's the, it, you know, it foreshadows what is to come. Um, we know you've talked about the mobilized forces. There's many more Russians fighting now, almost double than what we saw in the fall. Um, there's questions about whether or not there will be another um, formal mobilization. It's equally likely um, that they can, can you know, that the, the previous mobilization never came to an official close. Right. And so the Kremlin still has the ability to round up the fighters that it needs to continue um, to fuel this war effort. So. Um, uh, yeah, so I don't know. I don't think it's not, I don't think the Russians feel them in a place of, of desperation. Um, the one thing that I would note too is, you know, there, there's often questions about how sensitive Putin will be to casualties. Um, and I think this is, has made pretty darn clear that he doesn't care. And um, it's also um, something we can understand through the lens of authoritarianism. There's some good research that shows that these personalist dictators are actually the least sensitive to casualties yeah. because they can ensure that the casualties are coming from outside of their core support. And that's, you know, it is what we've seen. A lot of folks in the Far East, non-Slavic fighters who are taking the disproportionate um, uh, burden. Um, so again, I don't think that we should expect that the high casualties are somehow going to give Putin pause. So we'll definitely come back to Prigozhin and the Wagner Group, because obviously he's one of the most sort of compelling um, antagonists in this uh, in this saga right now. But but Jeff, let me ask you the same question that we 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 started on with Andrea with. I mean, you know, set the table for us from your perspective and what you're seeing and hearing, and also on the on the political front. But very interested to hear how you're assessing you know, what looks to be the nascent stages of the of the new Russian offensive that's uh, underway. No, I largely agree with Andrea. I think if you look at the line of contact overall, on average, it's fairly static. <clears throat> you had mentioned Bakhmut. 
Um, that's a really interesting case. Um, they are, you know, to your question about whether or not they're adapting or not, we're definitely seeing some of that there. Um, when you talk about human waves, what they're actually doing is sending in untrained troops to trigger a Ukrainian response and then sending in higher trained troops after that. So in a certain sense, they're trying to, to conserve their, their troops and the Wagner group included that are more trained and just using these human waves or these, these untrained soldiers to deal with. And that's, you know, the, the mobilization was, was designed to fix a very serious manpower problem in the Russian military. And even if you don't train these guys well, if you're on the Ukrainian side, you still have to deal with a guy with an AK-47 sitting across a, a you know, a, you know the, the field from you, um, whether or not they're trained. And so it does, it has appeared that the Rush, this is, this is working for the Russians somewhat around Bakhmut. I think what's unknown is how much the Ukrainians are deciding to like die on that hill, right? I mean, when we saw Russians take cities previously, the Ukrainians really don't have the objective of holding the city forever, just using it as a way of draining the Russian. So it's unclear. I think the Ukrainians want to hold Bakhmut. Bakhmut itself has become fairly political. I think it's not a strategic site. I mean, it's got some east-west rail lines and roads, so it's not unimportant, but it's certainly not strategic. Yet the Russians are pouring strategic levels of resources into this fight. And I think it's largely political. Like They just need some kind of victory. Right? And I think the Ukrainians know that, and that's why they're kind of caught in this Bakhmut area. Um, I think we've been suggesting that perhaps the Ukrainians could focus somewhere else um, and make gains somewhere else. But I think they're kind of tied to this fight with the Russians around Bakhmut for political reasons. Is it but fair to take on that point, though? Is it fair? Uh, I know you're saying it's, it, it's not the proverbial hill to die on, but right. it is literally on a hill, right? In other words, it, do, it is sort of advantage <laughs> defender rather than attacker. Um, because that's the name that's the town name we hear the most right now right right I, but i do think it's i mean it's like i said it's not insignificant but there, there are a number of different towns there that that russia would have to continue taking um and ukrainians have time to to really kind of drain russian forces as they try to take Bakhmut. but again i think that the ukrainians are in a difficult position right now needing to to you know portray i mean be, be, needing to communicate that they can stay in this fight um and for the russians themselves just the need to get something done. And I think that, you know, they're, unfortunately, the Wagner group and the Russian military are, are now working closer together than they have in the past to try to take Bakhmut. Traditionally, the Wagner group isn't very much liked by the Russian military, but they really become, because of Prigozhin's tactics, um, they really become kind of useful in, in this particular area. And to the mobilization, I totally think, I actually heard from someone that was in Moscow recently, that there's now chatter about a second mobilization possibly coming towards the end of February or end of March. We'll see if that actually happens. But even though it was disorganized, it produced 86,000 troops for the front line. And it will probably only get, you know, more efficient as they, as they move on. So let's look at it from the other perspective for a second then, Jeff. I mean, what is your sense right now of the state of the Ukrainian military through after, uh, after all of this? Um, and, you know, what do you expect in terms of, you know, a Ukrainian counteroffensive. What would that be? When would you expect it? Where will where will it be? I mean, I guess you know you talked about this harsh fighting around Bakhmut over the last month, but beyond that, I think we're about to. I guess we're about to find out who has used this sort of period of relative downtime more effectively, right? I mean, Russia has has added more troops um, to some degree. It sounds like they're adapting to some of their mistakes or adapting to a battlefield condition that 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 sort of plays to whatever they. Uh, you know, whatever strength they may have. 
On the other hand, Ukraine has been re receiving training, receiving intelligence, receiving support, and of course, receiving better kit. So what, what, what do you think about the Ukrainian side on this right now? So I do think the Ukrainians are in some ways in a better position. I mean, they were in a better position starting because they, this is their country and the officers and soldiers that were there knew the territory much better than the, the Russians did. Like you said, they've got better kit, higher morale, um, better trained, I would say at this point. They are outnumbered. But what I think is interesting is both both sides, it, what's hard to tell is who's going to attack where. Let's say the Russians or the Ukrainians are, are, are shifting forces around. You don't know if that's in response to their perceptions of the other side's offensive or they're preparing for an offensive themselves. And so it does kind of confuse the battlefield a bit. But I think that both Russia and Ukraine are going to be under increasing amounts of pressure to actually produce something, especially the Ukrainians, right? Because there's obviously, you know, a set of, of voices here in D.C. that that really are kind of pushing towards the negotiating side of the house. Um, I don't think the administration's there uh, right now. Um, but the more this becomes like a static type of war, I think the stronger those voices become. And so I think at least the Ukrainians perceive a real need to demonstrate that they can take the kit that we've given them and actually produce results and, and gain territory. So speaking of kit, Andrea, obviously last month, um, a lot of the story, a lot of the news was all around the decisions uh, by the uh, by the Western allies to send battle tanks to uh, uh, to Ukraine, um, the German uh, the German Leopards, of course, the American Abrams tank, and uh, and Britain's main battle tank as well. But I think contrary to, I mean, maybe some of the audience don't fully understand that those tanks are not going to arrive in the theater of battle for some time. Um, but but I wanted to ask you about this process that we are seeing since the beginning of the war up now through the tank decision that, you know, um, a lot of the requests on the Ukrainian part have been answered by no, 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 and then yes, right? We get to yes. And obviously, as soon as the yes was arrived at on the tanks, um, Ukraine started to ask for fighter jets, bombers, um, and of course, uh, and of course, missiles, um, weapons that are much more offensive in, um, in nature, and that in theory could strike deep into Russian territory or deep into, uh, into, into Crimea. And I'm wondering if, you know, um, you know we're getting to uh, a point where, you know, are, do you think we're going to head toward those types of uh, weapons and that this, pro this process and, and, and trend will continue? But have we overthought to a certain degree, you know, um, the risk of Ukraine actually firing these things into, into Moscow and creating civil, uh, civilian deaths in, the, in, in Russia, uh, as an example, because the West provides this kit, as Jeff says, they are dependent on um, on these on these weapons, and if they you know quote unquote misuse them, that supply could dry up and support for Ukraine could change. So are are we overestimating the risk that they would misuse the weaponry? Number one and number two, you know, are we is it as we send more weapons? Is it also indicative that we the West are less fearful of the escalation factor on the uh, on the Russian part? Um, I think that um, are we overestimating the risk? Well, I think it's um, fair to say that probably one of the most constant um, kind of dynamics guiding Washington, D.C.'s thinking on this has been the desire to avoid a direct military confrontation and avoid any kind of escalation. And so my sense is that the this administration 
um, sees this incrementalism as an effective way of tamping down that risk. They do think of it, I think, as like a boiling the frog in a hot pot of water. Um, that, you know, and, and, it, and it's in their interest, right? And to um, communicate no, 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 until we say yes, because I think they're also trying to shape Moscow's perceptions of where this is all headed. So it is, it is intentional and it needs to be credible that we're saying, no, we won't do these next steps in order to try to control that risk of escalation. So um, I do think it's hard to say because I, I am surprised that we sent the tanks, I have to say. Like, I did not think that Washington would ultimately send the Abrams tanks. I thought the no, no, no was extremely credible and then we sent them. So I feel like now I'm not in a position to be able to say whether or not they're going to send the fighter planes or other things, um, given given that just these recent dynamics. I suppose the incrementalism then suggests that we could be headed in that direction. And I think there is actually more pressure coming from Europe than here in Washington, right? The UK is taking the step that they're going to start training uh, uh, the Ukrainians to fly these types of planes without committing that they're going to provide them. But they're anticipating the, the training and the lead time um, once the yes is given. So it does seem to me like there's tremendous pressure from Europe um, to continue to do more to climb up this ladder. Um, and, um, and the Ukrainians, I, guess, I think the second point about managing um, the, the, the dynam dynamics here, I think the Ukrainians have been especially attuned to and um, uh, put in significant amount of effort to assure Washington that we won't cross red lines, right? So we've heard them say that we will give Washington DC veto over certain targets, et cetera. So they understand um, the calculus that is being made in Washington and they're doing everything in their um, power to uh, assure Washington DC that these types of systems will not be used in ways that, that, that risk provoking that direct military confrontation. So can I ask you just to, to, to maybe flesh out a little bit here, because you said something that kind of undermined my, my thesis, and I'm interested to know why you thought this, that so this notion that, you know, there were no, 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 yes, and then, you know, and, and we've gotten subsequently, you know, greater firepower heading toward, toward Ukraine, yet you, it sounds like you seem to think that there was going to be this red line on the main battle tank, the Abrams uh, tank as an example. So ultimately, what do you think changed the calculus there uh, or what it was it what you're talking about was it you know allied pressure um and you know and this and this this desire to keep everybody on the same page um or was it that ukraine ukraine has proven itself a responsible steward of the weapons that it's been being given um or what do you think what do you think changed um, I think it was Germany's reluctance to give the leopards and I think it was really that Scholz came down so decisively to say that we will not give our leopards until Washington DC gives its Abrams. And so then he shifted the onus onto Washington. Um, and he wanted, he didn't want to go it alone. And obviously there's particular domestic reasons why Scholz didn't want to be out front on providing the leopards. But I think if Germany had moved, um, then the US would have refrained from sending the Abrams. And so I think it was very much a political decision. The other point I just wanted to make quickly on this kind of incrementalism, I also think it's important to highlight that I think um, the, the changes in the systems that we're providing are also based, I think, on changing dynamics on the battlefield. And you'll hear that from DOD officials here in Washington, D.C., 
saying as the nature of the battle has changed, as Ukraine's needs have changed, so too has have the systems that we're providing. So I think those are the two guiding factors for Washington. Number one is avoiding risk and the direct military confrontation with Russia. And number two is responding to Ukraine's changing on the battlefield. You know, I was asking you earlier too about this, uh, you know, the, 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 the risk of escalation with, um, with Russia. Um, and it seems to me that Russia has been very, you know, fastidious in not allowing a single bullet to fall into NATO territory. Even last week, right, or earlier this week, there was a, a debate whether a missile had flown through some NATO airspace as it had gone through Moldovan air, airspace, as an example, it turned out it had not. I mean, um, it, it, do you think it's, do you think, do you read the messaging as clear from Russia that they do not want to escalate this into a NATO fight either? Yeah. That is my understanding. I mean, I think NATO remains uh, a very credible deterrent to Russia, and Putin has no interest in in broadening this fight. Obviously, you know, we are hearing about all of the troubles and difficulties they have um, in the in the conflict with Ukraine, and so there's he has no interest in widening this war at this moment in time. So that deterrent, although NATO hasn't been directly involved, they've taken all sorts of steps to signal its credibility to strengthen the eastern flank. They've doubled the number of battalions in the east. Um, so I and you know President Biden keeps talking about the fact that we will defend every inch, and it's to me the dynamics in this war make it really clear that NATO still is a very uh, credible deterrent from Moscow's perspective. And Jeff, you know, Andrea and I were just talking about some of the really sophisticated uh, weapons that are being requested now, but you know, um, I think one of the one of the lessons that's been learned in this war yet again, uh, which people like you know all too well. Right, the the professionals focus on logistics and the amateurs focus on the on the weapons. Right, um, that you know we've been hearing that the Ukrainians have been going through something like five thousand artillery shells per day, which is about the same annual procurement of some of the smaller uh, European countries. Russia itself may be firing off as many as twenty thousand a day. But so on this, you know, the vital element of uh, providing you know the artillery at the um, uh, in in into the sizes that are uh, that are, you know, necessary for the types of weapons they have on the battlefield. Is this becoming a problem or um, is it, uh, is production being ramped up and procurement being ramped up so, so that it, it actually isn't such a big issue or, or is this something you are concerned about? No, it is definitely something that we're concerned about. I mean, there's, there's a tremendous amount of ammunition being used on the battlefield. I would say that that's the first priority of, of logistics for the Ukrainians are, is artillery and air defense systems. Um, we have ramped up production, but going forward, this is a serious challenge for the Ukrainians, and it's a serious challenge for the Russians. The Russians have started producing ammunition around the clock, nowhere near as fast as they're using it, right? And so this is going to be a continued challenge for both sides. On the other weapons, um, I agree with Andrea. I was surprised. I served on tanks when I was on active duty. Um, they're incredible, and it's not training someone to shoot an M1, right? That's actually not too difficult. I'm concerned about training mechanics. Right, all of the systems on M1, and I'm sure this is true for Leopards um, as well, all of the systems are very complicated. And it's not as if you're on a T7, Russian T72 and you can just change parts out or anything like that, like the, the gunner site that you look through, things like that. Those are very complicated systems. They're hard to replace, um, they're fragile, and it takes a bunch of experience. And so it's really the train up of the mechanics and getting the logistics in place that I think is the real challenge behind that, not to your point. I think that's why they're not going to be seen on the battlefield for quite some time. Right. 
So, you know, I, was, I want to go back to something you said, talked about earlier, Jeff. Um, you were talking about the, the sort of human wave strategy of the, um, of the Russians, and you explained sort of what was behind that. Um, but I guess, I, I guess my, my question here is, you know, does this, and, and to Andrea's earlier point, that Putin does not care, right? I mean, he will, these are expendable numbers. These are numbers that he can, he can politically survive with, essentially. Um, does that main, mean then that time is on Putin's side? I mean, I'm going back to this, this idea of the types of weapons that we are providing to the Ukrainians. Does it, if, if, if he's got unlimited, basically unlimited human resources that he can throw, um, throw at this war, do we have an incentive to arm Ukraine to quote unquote, finish the job? In other words, you know, um, I guess, how much will these platforms actually change the dynamic versus the political and strategic and military decisions to be made by the Ukrainians and their ability to actually execute on the, uh, on, on the ground? I think once the systems get in place, they can have a, a significant impact on the battlefield. We saw that with high Mars. Doesn't necessarily mean you're going to see the same thing with M1s. There's a lot to, you know, modern combined arms warfare and maneuver. There's a lot that goes into that. There's, there's kind of a culture in the U.S. military about, you know, using combined arms and, and different branches and, and really trying to maneuver around enemies. Um, that's a hard thing to produce. Uh, we haven't seen the Ukrainians doing a lot of that, nor the Russians, which, which was kind of a surprise uh, to many of us. But I do think it will have an impact on the battlefield. To Putin, I would say, I, I certainly think he believes time is on his side, right? I think that the, in terms of escalation, I actually think the escalation threat went down when he mobilized, right? Because that, to me, you know, it's a kind of a political signal that Russia sees itself in this for the long term and believes, believes that it has the reserves um, in both manpower and equipment to wear the West. And you'll hear this from, from the Russians. The Russians, you know, think that there's a limited amount of time that, that the U.S. is going to be engaged with this, with NATO, and that if they can just hold on, they can eventually, you know, make those strategic gains that, that they wanted to make in the beginning of the war. So I certainly think they have it. What I would caution, though, is I, I don't know that they do, right? I mean, it's Putin has built up this idea about World War II and, and just being able to, the, like the, the accomplishments they did, made during World War II, they can do this again. And this isn't World War II. This isn't Stalingrad. Um, we are seeing reports that that some of the prisoners that the Wagner group was getting word has gotten back to prisons that, hey, if you go do this, you've got like a two percent chance of living through it. Um, and they're starting to like not want to go. So. You know, Andrea knows much more about authoritarian regimes than I do, but it's it's one of these things where this, you know, I have, I'm quoting Andrea here. It's, it, you know, the system is stable until it suddenly isn't right. And so I think that. I don't think he has an, has a, just a complete blank check with which he can he can just carry this on for years. It's frightening to think about that World War II comparison that he draws. I mean, it sounds uh, horrific to lose two hundred thousand men on the on the on the battlefield, but uh, I believe the Soviets lost something like eight million soldiers right. on the battlefield in, right. in, in World War II. So, um, you know, Andrea, talking about escalation, I, I want to go back to something you and I have talked about on this broadcast a number of times, and I just sort of have to bring it up again because I, I, I'm interested to know where you think things have evolved, both in terms of the threat and in terms of the politics. And that is, of course, on the nuclear front. Um, you know, he's used the nuclear threat um, numerous times. I think one could argue, you know, to some degree, it's, it's, it's successful, right, in the sense that it is a factor in the decision making of the U.S. and NATO and so on and so forth. Um, but, but in terms of the actual employment 
of a tactical nuclear weapon. Where are you, wh where do you think we are on that risk spectrum now? Um, and I know you've talked about what happens if he's pushed up, you know, actually about to get pushed out or what have you, but like, where, 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 how would you characterize that right yeah, I think I'm still in the same place. Um, but and your point is an important one. I think like obviously that we have to Russia as a nuclear power um, has been a key factor in containing the conflict. Right. You talked about Putin being Putin being deterred by NATO. Um, and it's in large part because, you know, that's obviously a nuclear alliance. And so on both sides, the nuclear uh, dynamic has been really key to the containment of the conflict. And as we've talked about, I think it's that risk of escalation, especially uh, the nuclear risk that has been key in slowing down um, the Western provision of certain systems <clears throat> into Ukraine. So the, I think the nuclear piece, um, we shouldn't understate its importance in really containing the conflict. Um, I still think, I don't think my view on the risk of nuclear use in this conflict has changed much since we talked. I still believe that it's extremely low risk um, and I still kind of view the scenario um, in which it would be most likely as that scenario in which Putin believes that he's kind of eminently going to be um, unseated by something having to do with a conflict. If it's a clear defeat, an embarrassing defeat, or dynamics change at home such that he feels that his own hold on power is um, at risk because of what's happening on the battlefield, it would be more of like a Hail Mary where he he's just trying to do something to change the dynamics again to see um, if if he can if he can change uh, and it into I don't know if it's the right analogy but the gamble for resurrection he would do something in order to try to preserve his own hold on power so I, again overall bottom line is I still see the risk is relatively low so um, I'm going to get to Jeff and the uh, and Wagner here in just a, in just a moment but I wanted to bring up something to both of you that that, that Jeff and I were talking about a little bit yesterday. Um, that I think the audience might be interested in. And I'm wondering what, what your, how you would assess the performance of, um, of the media that our audience is typically going to be exposed to. Um, because, you know, uh, I think a little bit different in this war versus wars that we, you know, have become used to in Iraq and Afghanistan and whatnot, where, you know, U.S. Uh, mainstream media was embedded with, you know, with, 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 uh, with troops and, and units on the front. Um, that's not really happened as much in this in this case, and so I'm wondering, you know, um, if you could tell us a little bit, both of you, about how you get open source information that you feel is reliable. But more importantly, for the sake of the audience, do you think that the mainstream sort of, you know, um, highly regarded media, the New York Times, the Economist, the FT, CNN, those, stuff, you know, are they getting the story right-ish in terms of at least, you know, in terms of the overall picture? Um, and conditions that they are uh, that they're telling us is that is it a, a genuinely accurate picture that they're painting? I, I think in large part it is rightish is what I would say. I mean, I think in some ways this war is one of the most transparent wars we've seen, largely because of drones and helmet cameras and things like that. Um, but one thing I will say is that there's obviously going to be a selection bias there, right? You're going to see more videos of soldiers not of Russian soldiers not getting good winter equipment, for example then you will of Russian soldiers getting good at winter equipment. Those things just kind of stand out. Um, there are thousands of videos of drones dropping grenades on the tops of tanks. My assessment is a lot of those are not even manned. Um, the, the tanks are not manned because there's no reaction, there's nothing. Um, and so it, yet we do have to be very careful, but I think um, especially the you know some of the outlets you mentioned, 
I do think they're getting it. You know, I've got we've all gotten to know some of the the authors there, and they're pretty diligent. Um, and so there's there's a there's a it's a very rich open source environment. And I think they're they are getting it right for the most part. Yeah, Andrea, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I agree with Jeff. I mean, I found, you know, New York Times and a lot of these outlets to be really reliable sources of, of what's happening. Um, you know, certainly Twitter has been uh, an incredibly um, reliable space. You figure out the people who are really following things at a tactical level. And some people are providing just incredible insights um, almost in real time. And so I think that's been a really incredible feature to this. I think the one area maybe where the media um, doesn't always have it right is engaging kind of the Western response. Um, I think oftentimes there's been too much made of alliance disunity, or I don't, there's always kind of an emotional bent to, oh my gosh, are the allies going to come together to do this, or an overemphasis on the divisions in what is a large and messy alliance. And I think so sometimes with the media, too much is made on the disarray or like, I don't know, for lack of a better word, like the sausage making. It's never going to be a, a neat and, and easy and un, um, there's always going to be differences of opinion in, 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 in alliances of this size. And so sometimes I think the media has placed um, undue emphasis on tensions within the alliance or disagreements when the track record has been pretty darn good. Right. So, Jeff, let's go to let's go to the Wagner group and this guy, Prigozhin, who, who um, you know, what's going on there? Uh, it, it is it, there's as you indicated that there is some indications that the, that they are no longer recruiting out of the prisons and perhaps your point um, that's that prison life sounded better than uh, than frontline life. Um, but I guess more I'm more interested in what you think Prigozhin is doing here and where he is now fitting into the Russian power structure. You, you indicated he'd been a thorn in the side of the regular military for some time. Um, but we also know that, uh, as we've seen in Africa and Syria, he has been sent to do some of the really nasty work. Um, so w where does he fit in? Um, and where does his group fit into the military picture? I do think part of his motivation is, is for greater power, greater influence in the Kremlin. What's been interesting is that he and Kadyrov and some others have been very critical of the, of the Russian military. And I actually think that was behind the, the recent news that your, your viewers probably heard that there was another change out of command. Um, what that actually was, was the, you know, the equivalent to our chairman of the Joint Chiefs stepping in. I think part of that was in response to the Wagner group, Prigozhin. It was in a certain sense a reassertion of the Russian chain of command. But at the same time, the group has been useful in Bakhmut. I don't know that they survived Bakhmut. I mean, there's... He, you know, Wagner doesn't have an unlimited number of people. And Prigozhin has really shown a tenacity for just throwing his people away. And so, I, you know, I've, there have been different views on where the Wagner group in general fits in within Russian foreign policy. You mentioned Syria and Africa. I don't see them as the tip of the spear, but they have been useful in certain areas. But, for example, when they were in Syria, unfortunately for them, you know, some Wagner guys attacked a U.S. base and just happened to be on horrible terrain. And we obliterated that unit. Um, the Russian military did nothing in response to that. And so that kind of gives you an idea of where they are. I do think the trend, unfortunately, is that they are starting to work closer together because they have to. And Prigozhin has been able to use these tactics and his own money to, to build kit. Um, and again, he's, he's got some guys that are pretty well trained, 
they go in after the guys that are not trained. And so he's, that's how he's been executing this. But again, I don't think he can do that forever. We've seen some reporting, I think, in the New York Times and maybe in some other outlets that, you know, that, that the, the deal that was on offer to these, uh, to these prisoners was you go, to, you go to war, if you can survive for six months, you've got an amnesty. And there's indications that some of them have gotten that. And those guys, those first ones, are now the survivors are, are returning to Russia. So you've got some of the worst of the worst, right, the murderers, the rapists, you know, the worst criminals who've now been put through the frontline situation. So they're in a pretty grumpy mood, one has to imagine. And now they're trying to actually reintegrate themselves into the societies of these little towns and whatnot that they have come from, which has got to be sort of um, potentially socially pro problematic in, uh, in Russia. I don't know how many of them are going to survive. But I guess, you know, Andrea, I'd love to hear any thoughts you have on, on, on that dynamic. But I really want to return to what you were starting uh, talking about at the very beginning in this kind of um, the issue of objectives, because, you know, I want to get a bit of your sense of where things really are in, in Russia. Um, Putin's hold on, on, on power, understanding that, you know, autocrats don't go like this. They kind of go like that and that you've made that, that point. But where, are, where do you think we might be um, uh, in that? And, and what does victory kind of really, really look like? Even if they achieved their objectives in Ukraine, it seems to me that they would then be facing a decades-long uh, guerrilla insurgency, probably in uh, in Ukraine that would that would chip away at them and make you know Afghanistan um, you know look like junior varsity, perhaps by comparison um, for them. So, what's realistic? Um, and, and, and where do you think, and are they dealing in realistic? Let's put it, uh, let's put it that way. Yeah, really good questions. And obviously we've, I mean, the, the big caveat is predicting this, the timing of the departure of any authoritarian leader is, um, all but impossible. And so all you can really do is more and about kind of the underlying conditions. Um, and I, my assessment still is that Putin's hold on power is weaker now than it was before the invasion. But that said, I still think the odds of his ouster are incredibly low. Um, when you look, I mean, there still is no viable alternative to Putin. And that continues to be his single greatest pillar of stability. Um, if, you, if you're the elite or you're the public, like if you wanted to defect from the regime, if you were really unhappy about the direction that Putin is taking things, you're worried about your wealth um, and your future of your family, and you wanted to defect to the regime, where are you going to defect to, right? You can't defect if there's nowhere to defect to. And so I still think that is you know, the number one imp most important dynamic. Thinking about it from a public perspective, like a protest kind of revolution scenario, um, I think the fact that so many Russians have left, you know, I, I don't know what the latest numbers are, 300,000 or so, um, a lot of those who left early, right at the beginning of the invasion, are those who probably would have been most inclined to oppose the regime, highest levels of education. They would have been the ones likely mobilizing, and the fact that they're now outside of Russia takes a lot of pressure off the Putin regime. It's like a pressure release valve. So, um, you know, the other thing that I've been thinking about is, is kind of, again, this war termination and looking at some of the literature on these autocrats. And it's really remarkable. Um, there's some good research that shows that so long as a dictator is executing the war, the risk of their removal is extremely low. So them being at war creates a lot of dynamics that make it very difficult for the elite, for the public, 
to mobilize against a leader. And Putin certainly has done a great job at portraying anyone who opposes the war as anti-Russian, anti-patriotic. So it, so and so, I guess that's what I worry about. Is I am uh, most worried about a long war uh, scenario because I don't think that Putin has any incentive to end the war. Um, and the only way that I think he would be willing to end the war is something that he could at least sell as a victory to his public. Um, and the problem is, is I don't think that's something that the Ukrainians would accept. And so. He, he will not be willing to accept something that even looks or smacks or smells anything like defeat because I think dictators who do lose conflicts do have a heightened risk of being uh, ousted by the war. And so he has no incentive to end this war um, for the foreseeable future until he gets to a point at which he could plausibly sell something as a victory at home. So put another way, the sort of the, 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 the Russian elite um, and that sort of political and power elite around him continues to, to support this, not so much because that there's this realistic, absolute victory prospect, but that defeat is essentially an unimaginable type of a, type of a scenario. Um, yeah, I think, and, and Putin has done a really good job at making them all, all culpable. And I just keep thinking back to the beginning of the war when he, you know, either if it was the heads of, you know, the intelligence agencies or getting together all of the economic elite and sitting them down, um, they are all culpable. And so I think they all understand that a defeat risks bringing that whole system down. And so they have no choice but to stay in this until they can produce something that either is like a draw or some sort of victory, um, or and, and certainly given their control over the media environment, something that at least they can sell as um, a victory. You know, I would, I would recommend to the audience, if you're interested in going into this in further detail, actually, Andrea wrote an interesting piece in the November-December issue of Foreign Affairs, actually with Jeff's colleague, Michael Kaufman. Um, and I reread that last night. There's a great line toward the end where you say something like, something to the effect of Russia is never as strong as it looks, and it's never really as weak as it looks either. And that's what's very dangerous about this, uh, about this country and its leadership. You know, Jeff, we've talked and Andrea has talked and you've talked at different times over the course of this conversation about, you know, trying to limit the escalation risk here, right? Everything from, um, you know, trying to restrict the types of weapons Ukraine has and then restrict how they are used and where, where, they, can be, uh, where they can be fired, um, the incentives on the Russian side to not, uh, to not uh, do, do anything that would trigger an Article 5, um, uh, you know, trigger Article 5. Are there scenarios, though, out there that concern you at all or that, that sort of rise to the level that we should even be thinking about and, and where NATO, meaning the U.S., um, could actually um, get itself into, into this battle um, short of you know, some sort of overt Russian trigger? Um, that, you know, are there other ways that you can stumble into this war or are there outside factors that are you know, could either take advantage or, or do something because of all of this chaos, you know, the Iranians or what have you, that could actually turn this into a bigger conflagration? Where, where, what, how concerned should we, we be on that front? I, I, first, I agree with Andrea that we're not, we're not in a heightened state. I don't think the, the probability of use of a low-yield nuclear weapon is very high right now. There are scenarios where I could see that happening. I think it's important to remember that the Russian military is much more comfortable in thinking about and using nuclear weapons than the U.S. is because of our conventional superiority that we've had for decades, 
you kind of push nuclear weapons at, off to this thing that you know no one really needs to talk about. The Russians don't see it that way, and they actually have a very integrated view of, of nuclear and conventional capabilities on a modern battlefield. We're not there. Um, I think what would trigger that would be a loss of command and control over Russian uh, Russian military. That's not a, you know, if, if they were to just start disintegrating, basically, and, and like losing all command and control, just walking away from their weapons, that's not a high probability scenario. It's certainly possible enough that, to think about, but I think under under some kind of circumstance like that, if it was a massive failure, what you might see is Putin try to escalate this into a Russian-NATO war. And when I say that, you know, some will scoff, but the point of, of doing that would not be to actually win a war against NATO. Putin knows that NATO doesn't want to enter this war because of the fear of nuclear weapons. And so the message there would be, I know you don't want this war, but if you don't control this, that's exactly what you're going to have with all of the nuclear trappings that go with it. And so I do think there is that scenario out there. But I, I think it's, again, the mobilization, as long as Putin, you know, as long as that seems to be working even incrementally and he's making some progress, I think that that threat is fairly low. So, Andrea, I guess the next major data point on where everybody is on this is likely to come uh, this weekend at the Munich uh, Security Conference. For those of you who are unfamiliar with this, it's a, the, it's a, it's a very, very major meeting, so-called so Davos of Defense. Um, and uh, for those of you who remember, back in 2007, it's where Putin made explicit what he was going to be doing um, in, the, in the coming years, up to and including uh, the Ukraine situation. So what do you, I guess, Andrea, what are you hearing and what are you expecting perhaps to come out of, uh, out of Munich this weekend? Uh, I mean, I think we expect all of the strong kind of signals of support, right? I mean, it's going to be a tremendous opportunity for a lot of major uh, Western leaders to get together um, and to continue to demonstrate and signal their commitment to be in this for the long term. I, I, my sense is that's where Western leaders are at this moment. I think everyone is recognizing that this has the potential to settle into a long conflict. I think everyone recognizes that Putin thinks that time is on his side and that he can wait the West out. And so the Western leaders are looking for ways to credibly commit, to credibly signal to backing Ukraine as long as it takes, right? That's Biden's also new term, as long as it takes is what we keep hearing. Um, I don't, I, I'm not catching any wind of any major announcements. Obviously we know the EU is getting ready to have its 10th sanctions package. Um, but I don't know, Jeff, if you've heard anything, but I haven't um, caught wind of any kind of major announcements. Um, the one thing I'll note too, though, it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition. Obviously Western leaders are gathering uh, at Munich. Uh, Russia will not be present this year. Um, but it is notable that I think the Chinese foreign minister is planning a visit to Russia also sometime around the February 24th, around the anniversary. And so Russia, too, is trying to assemble its, you know, quote unquote, allies or its friends. Obviously, it's not an ally in the, the literal sense, but um, it, 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 Russia is also trying to signal um, to, that, that it has the staying power and that it has powerful friends in its corner and that it's not nearly as isolated as the West would like to believe it is on the international stage. So Andrea, Andrea, you just brought up China. So let me just ask you really quickly here, where do you think China is? I mean, China's had some interesting, um, you know, there's been an interesting dynamic, right? I mean, after, after, their, you know, after the support, and after their sort of like unlimited um, potential of friendship with, uh, with, with Russia, um, you know, we saw 
we saw Xi Jinping, in a way, sort of chastise him, uh, chastise Putin at Samarkand. Um, we saw him make a sort of a definitive, seemingly definitive nuclear statement um, uh, when he was with Tran Chancellor Schultz, which suggests there are limits to that friendship, perhaps. Um, and notwithstanding the balloons, you know, it seems like, um, you know, there'd been this ongoing attempt by the Chinese uh, to try to put a floor under the deteriorating relationship with the, uh, with the United States. So while they provided historical and political court for, for Russia, up until now, we've seen, you know, them pretty much adhering to the, um, uh, to the sanctions uh, against Russia, particularly on military material and the like. Although the Wall Street Journal last weekend did suggest that there was perhaps some slippage on that front. So where do you think China is uh, right now on, on this? I think um, that she remains firmly in Putin's corner. Um, and I, uh, despite all of the kind of data points that you gave, um, I still think that she um, has no interest in seeing Putin destabilized by this conflict, and they will do everything possible without eliciting unnecessary blowback on themselves um, to try to mitigate the Western pressure um, that is on Russia. I think they will continue. I think the Wall Street Journal that, that was excellent reporting. Um, I hear catching wind from U.S. officials and um, the Biden administration that they are extremely concerned um, that China is looking for opportunities to circumvent, bypass the sanctions, the export controls, and other things. So again, I, I certainly she has no interest in eliciting unnecessary blowback. He's not going to provide military support for the foreseeable future. That is extremely hard for me to imagine. But I think they will look for every opportunity to try to mitigate the pressure on Putin um, in, in order to, to make sure that he's not toppled by this. They have a close personal partnership. It, we should understand that it is a top-down relationship between these two leaders. Um, and there's many, many dynamics. I think she has no, he, he would be concerned that Putin could be followed by a leader that would be at least relatively more pro-Western. Um, and for Xi, Putin is his most important partner in confronting the West and standing up to the United States. Um, and so I think he's really in his corner um, to, the, to the fullest extent possible. Jeff, where do you think Zelensky is right now? Where, what are his, what's his room for, for maneuver? I mean, it's been really interesting to see that, um, you know, he's made some moves. He's, he's removed the defense minister, uh, Reznikov, or it sounds like he's about to replace him. Um, there have been moves um, to root out cor corruption ongoing um, in the midst of trying to execute on this uh, on this war as well. And to the point where Ursula von der Leyen um, in, in, in Ukraine recently was talking about the extraordinary moves. And I think they're, they're keeping that carrot out there, right, for Ukraine to keep moving toward the West and with the ultimate promise of the EU membership and ultimately even maybe NATO down the road or what have you. But, is, is, you know, give, give us a sense of where you think uh, Zelensky is now. And, and, you know, when we were talking about the end game scenarios in all of this, you know, um, where you think the Ukrainian people, are. could Zelensky, the hero of this war, would he politically survive if he gave anything away uh, for, for peace? I think he's on fairly stable footing. You, you do hear rumors every now and then that, you know, there's some discontent or what have you. But I think, I mean, he, he's really demonstrated, you know, amazing leadership in this, in this entire conflict. Um, and so I think for the Ukrainian people, the sense I get is that they still support him a great deal. I would say one of the biggest criticisms before this war was corruption, especially defense corruption. 
Uh, there was a lot of concern about the aid that we were giving them. Where was it going? And that doesn't just go away when you start shooting. Um, and so I think that the moves he's making now are helpful moves. I mean, they're disruptive because you are doing this in the middle of a war. Uh, but I think it's necessary going forward if they're going to maintain this relationship with the West and continue to deepen, you know, defense ties with the West. I think that's incredibly important. As for you know, ultimate goals, I think some people in D.C. mistakenly think about the February 24th line of contact as some kind of magic line that once you get to that, then we'll start negotiating. There's nothing geographically significant about that line. It would be like stopping in the middle of Capitol Hill for no reason. If they have the ability to get to that line, they have the ability to go further. So I would not expect them to stop. I don't expect them, obviously, to invade Russia. And this is, you know, down the down the road. But I think there's this kind of weird carrot out there that, you know, maybe we'll just help them until we get to February 24th. And I don't think that's the case. What I do also think is interesting is that on the Russian side, I don't think they have a very clear understanding of what an end state looks like that they would be okay with. If you if if they take as an assumption they can't take all of Ukraine, that, that's not a uniform belief over there. But let's say they do. Are they willing to have a Ukraine that that while they control part of the East, is recovering economically, or you know, after let's say there's a, a you know a ceasefire, recovering economically is increasingly building those defensive capabilities, um, like tanks. Like if you have tanks for years and years and years, you don't know how to use them and maintain them, um, and that's threatening. And I don't think the Russian leadership has a very clear understanding of, of what that would look like. And, you know, it's your point about U.S. aid and, and, you know, prior to the war and concerns that it was going into some sort of black hole. The counterfactual to that, though, it seems to me, would be that we were giving a lot of training, not just to yeah. frontline troops, but also to the command and control of the, of the Ukrainian military. And so when the war started, there was a qualitatively different Ukrainian military fielded than was extant back in 2014. Um, is that no, fair? I think that's right. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think we we're all fairly surprised. I think part of that also... If you look at Russian failures, you can kind of put them in two different baskets. One is the political, like what kind of political decisions were made that really sent the Russian military down the wrong road, literally, in, you know, in Ukraine. And the other one is like, what, what were the actual inherent difficulties with the Russian military? And they had both. But I wouldn't overstate how much Putin really set his own military up for failure by, for example, believing that he could take Kiev in 72 hours or that, you know, below the general officer level, no one knew they were going into Ukraine. So imagine invading your neighbor country and, oh, by the way, they now have sophisticated weapons and they're much better trained than you thought they were. That really plays into this a lot. Um, but I, to your point, I do think, I mean, the Ukrainians have a certain advantage, a home, home turf advantage. But I think that the level of, of tactical skill that, that I've seen in the Ukrainian forces is really much higher than that that I've seen in the Russian forces. We have these in the military, we have these basic like react to contact kind of thing. Like if you're in a tank, someone shoots at you, you don't stop and just start throwing your turret around looking for whoever's shooting you. The whole point of a tank is to move it, right? It's maneuver. And I don't see that on the Russian side. And I see the Ukrainians taking advantage of that with these small teams that have that are drone equipped and have, you know, modern anti-tank guided weapons. Um, and they're using that to high effect. So we just have a minute left, and I want to ask, and Andrea, I'm going to give you the last word here. Um, you know, we could devote an entire call, and we probably will devote an entire call down the road here on the U.S. politics on all of this. Uh, but I want to ask you a very specific question. Um, and that is, you know, as in any war, but this war particularly, you know, we have seen evolving narratives um, and evolving narratives out of the Russians. 
um, as well about why they're fighting, who they're fighting against, et cetera, et cetera. And recently, Putin has added another element um, to this, which is that he's fighting for civilization, he's fighting for Christianity, he's fighting for the sanctity of the family and things like that. And it sounds very reminiscent of some of the culture wars we have here and the timing of when this narrative thread started to really emerge, or at least the media pointing it out, um, kind of coincided with um, the midterm elections. And, you know, that do you think that Russia is also possibly trying to message into Congress, seeing that they have a possibility to drive a wedge, Congress controls the purse, of course, um, that, you know, that they could hive off some, we've seen, granted, Matt Gates is a provocateur more than anything else, but he did initiate uh, legislation the other day to stop supporting, um, stop supporting Ukraine. Um, you know, are they trying to drive a way, they see an opportunity that they're trying to exploit, even if that, that is a, uh, even if they're inaccurate in, in, in how effective they'll be, do you think that that's what's going on here? That is always the Russian objective, is to drive wedges and exploit opportunities as they see them. Um, and it's not just the U.S. and its crosshairs. I mean, I was really struck by how targeted Putin's messaging was. Um, in a recent speech where he called out Germany for sending the leopard tanks and kind of warned Germany, kind of did a little more nuclear saber rattling, I think yeah. intentionally to pick up on the fears in German society. So they find these moments, and I agree, like that they are definitely trying to um, take advantage or exploit some of the uh, potentially more sympathetic views within the US Congress um, about to, to wear down um, and instill doubts about sustained support for Ukraine. So that it, that to the, the, the wedge driving, um, the exploiting of opportunities is always what the Russians do. Um, but to your point, Kevin, you know, the question is how effective it will be. And so far it hasn't been, not in Germany um, and not in US, not in the US. And I don't think not yet in the US Congress, there still does seem to be very strong bipartisan support for Ukraine. I, I'm not concerned about um, any slowing of military aid for the foreseeable future. Um, certainly the calls for, they might make it more painful, more costly, more calls for oversight, particularly on, on the economic aid side of things. Um, but, but for the time being, um, I think uh, that, that, that US support is resolute. More questions emerge in my mind the further out we go. There's obviously questions about the 20, the next election. Um, and as you said, that's probably a, a whole nother uh, program. Um, but for the time being, yes, that is the Russians' intentions, but I don't think that they will be successful in those for the foreseeable future. So next Friday, February 24th, marks the one year anniversary of this war. Um, the sobering prognosis of this conversation is, is that this war is going well into its second year, if not further. Um, so we will be having more conversations as, uh, as events warrant and events develop, uh, both on the battlefield and, uh, and geopolitically. So there you have it. I'm Kevin Kajawara. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Teneo Insights. If you have any questions about any of the topics we cover, please reach out to us at teneoinsights at teneo.com. See you next time.